0: No talk
1: What's up, people? I am in my secular talk uniform today. I am all black and greened out. It looks like I'm wearing a literal uniform for secular talk, which is kind of hilarious. Um, jam-packed show today, so sit back, relax, drink some lemonade on this lovely summer day. It's lovely here, at least. I don't know if it's lovely where you are, but. Um, we got President Trump delivering a speech at Mount Rushmore, and uh, he really is leaning into his new campaign strategy here. So there's quite a bit to say about that. I got two stories on his Mount Rushmore speech that um, I'll dissect and explain what the logic is behind it and how it's going to play out moving forward. Um, we have a new anti Trump ad from a group called Midas Touch made us Touch? Whatever, it doesn't matter. Um, we're going to dissect that ad, and then as we move on, yes, we will be talking about Kanye West deciding to run for president. Um, yes, we will be talking about Fox News falling for the most obvious troll job on the planet. Um, I got more Big Pharma being comic book villainy type stories. I have a segment on White Fragility, the book White Fragility, which has been big in the news since the killing of George Floyd, Um, and, oh, the the heat wave that's hitting the Arctic. You heard that right. A heat wave that's hitting the Arctic, which is not a sentence that anybody should ever have to utter, but we're uttering it because it's almost like the climate is changing. Anyway, without further ado, let's get started, and we're going to, like I said, kick it off with President Trump and his uh, Mount Rushmore speech. Here we go. President Trump delivered a speech at Mount Rushmore and um, he really, really leaned into his new strategy here. So let's watch and then I have a lot to say about it.
2: Our nation is witnessing a merciless campaign to wipe out our history, to fame our heroes, erase our values and indoctrinate our children. Angry mobs are trying to tear down statues of our founders to face our most sacred memorials and unleash a wave of violent crime in our cities. Many of these people have no idea why they're doing this but some know exactly what they are doing. They think the American people are weak and soft and submissive. But no, the American people are strong and proud, and they will not allow our country and all of its values, history, and culture to be taken from them. is cancel culture, driving people from their jobs, shaming dissenters, and demanding total submission from anyone who disagrees. This is the very definition of totalitarianism, and it is completely alien to our culture and to our values, and it has absolutely no place in the United States of America. magnificent liberty must be stopped and it will be stopped very quickly we will expose this dangerous movement protect our nation's children end this radical assault and preserve our beloved American way of life in our schools our newsrooms even our corporate boardrooms There is a new far-left fascism that demands absolute allegiance. If you do not speak its language, perform its rituals, recite its mantras, and follow its commandments, then you will be censored, banished, blacklisted, persecuted, and punished. Not going to happen to us. Make no mistake, this left-wing cultural revolution is designed to overthrow the American Revolution. In so doing, they would destroy the very civilization that rescued billions from poverty, disease, violence, and hunger, and that lifted humanity to new heights of achievement, discovery, and progress. To make this possible, They are determined to tear down every statue, symbol, and memory of our national heritage. (laughs) That's very true, actually. That is why I am deploying federal law enforcement to protect our monuments, arrest the rioters, and prosecute offenders to the fullest extent of the law.
1: So this is his new thing. This is all he talks about. He focuses on it 24-7. He actually delivered two speeches over the weekend with the exact same theme. And, um, you know, in case you don't get it, the idea is I'm going to lean into the culture war, and I'm going to double down, and I'm going to triple down, and I'm going to basically stake my entire campaign on this issue he's trying to make this the centerpiece because he perceives it as a biden weakness now you know up front how how is it a biden weakness i see in no way shape or form is this a biden weakness no matter how many times you try to say it over and over that biden is captive to the far left it that's obviously not true and even you know many of trump's own supporters realize that that's ridiculous Joe Biden is basically a moderate Republican. So to try to, like, duke it out over the culture war and say that, you know, he's loyal to Antifa and Biden is going to be a Marxist leader or something, nothing rings true about that. Nothing rings true at all. And the fact of the matter is, now this is the part that is a little bit controversial to some people because there are plenty of people on the left who would disagree with me on this. But the, like, everything that's been happening recently has sort of solidified an old belief that I've had, which I actually wavered on for a minute, but now I'm, I'm right back to thinking, oh, gee, Kyle was correct, when I said the culture war is, truly is an ancillary issue. And the real thing that overrides it is material well-being. So it's all about the economy, stupid. It's all about... Your average American and their material well-being. Yes, you have some percentage of the population that's generally speaking old and white and brainwashed on Fox News, and they think about the statues 24/7, and they're up to their eyeballs in the culture war. That's true. You also have like the hardcore BLM types um, who also think the culture war is like front and center, and you know the main thing that everybody's focusing on in American society. I contend it's about 70 to 80% of the population is way more focused on COVID-19, the fact that we have a pandemic that's still raging out of control, and the fact that the actual unemployment rate is about 20%, which means we're in a new Great Depression. We've far surpassed the 2009 Great Recession. So I submit to you That your normie American is just, they're not as interested in this issue as many of the hardcore protesters are and many of the Fox News brainwashed crowd is. And again, Trump, he lost his political instincts because all he does is watch One America News Network, the network that's to the right of Fox News. All he does is watch Fox News. There was a report the other day that he called Tucker Carlson and was like, Bro, what do I do? I'm down in the polls. I've got to figure out something. And apparently Tucker gave him the wrong advice, because Tucker's also going all in on this whole culture war thing. And I hate to tell you guys, it's only hardcore political junkies who really have this front and center. Again, most normal people are like, how the hell am I going to pay the bills? That's what people are concerned about. People are getting laid off in massive numbers. People who are keeping their jobs are taking like 20% pay cuts across the board almost. You have, you know, COVID-19 affecting everybody. Everybody knows somebody who has had it, you know, and over 120,000 Americans are dead. That's two Vietnam wars. You could double the the number of American casualties on that. I mean, that's what normal people are concerned about. And Trump is so drunk on the Fox News Kool-Aid that not a single word about populism Not a single word about the trade deals. Not a single word about the wars. The only time he brought up COVID, it was in passing in this speech. So he's, I mean, honestly, this is a joke because he keeps doing this strategy and he keeps going down in the polls. How do you not realize this is a losing strategy? In 2016 against Hillary, it was all she did the Iraq war. She's the status quo, she's the establishment. She supported NAFTA. She supported the outsourcing deal. I'm going to protect your jobs. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to drain the swamp. So it sounded like an outsider candidate who was really going to stand up to the system. That was a potent strategy, and he still barely won. He lost the, uh, the popular vote and won the electoral college. Now he's got a terrible strategy, and he's down 10 points on average. He's losing in every single swing state, and he keeps going down this path. He literally said there that you know, this far-left movement is trying to overthrow the American Revolution. Really? <laughs> point, me, point me to the charter or the manifesto or whatever that says that, that this is what these protests are about. No, it was all sparked because of the, you know, the police brutality, the, the murder of George Floyd. That's what got people out in the streets. And then now when you talk to protesters, you get a variety of of responses as to what they're asking for. It seems like the centerpiece was the defund the police thing. Now, the defund the police thing on its face is something I think sounds extreme and most people think sounds extreme, but it did have the effect of kind of moving the Overton window where everybody now is like, oh, well, obviously we need police reform. So this is why people are out there. Yes, there are sporadic groups of young lefties who are maybe anarchists or something who are not just pulling down Confederate statues, they're pulling down every single statue in sight, So, you know, they did the other day with Frederick Douglass, like literally the last statue anybody should ever pull down. But again, the number of those people, this is so overblown. And no matter how much they talk about it and try to act like it's the biggest thing happening, COVID-19 and the economic depression are just slapping everybody in the face. So, you know, he said the, the statues are getting pulled down by violent mobs. And by the way, he went on to announce a 10 year prison sentence for defacing statues and monuments years in prison for defacing statues and monuments. Even if you're massively against defacing statues and monuments, 10 years is definitely overkill. And he actually brings up cancel culture there. Trump says the words cancel culture there. This is coming from the guy who sued Bill Maher over a joke. Bill Maher made a joke about Trump that Trump didn't like, where Bill Maher basically compared Trump to a monkey or an orangutan or something like that. And um, Trump was so triggered by it, he sued Bill Maher. This is also the guy who just said in a recent speech, I think we should punish flag burning with up to a year in jail. So, in other words, a quintessential example of free speech in a free society, flag burning. He says, I'm against that. So you are the proponent of cancel culture, sir. That's cancel culture right there. Locking somebody up in a cage for a year because they burnt a flag, which is just symbolism for saying, I'm protesting the country. A year in prison for that. Actual cancel culture. We covered a story on the show the other day. There's a North Carolina town that banned free speech. What did they do? They had police guard a Confederate monument. When people showed up to protest, they arrested them on the spot. And then if if you went and asked for a permit, they denied the permit. So in other words, protests and free speech are illegal in that North Carolina town. That's cancel culture. Cancel culture is the fact that in 2017, as a direct response to Black Lives Matter protests, the Women's March, and the No Dakota Access Pipeline protests, as a direct result of that, Republicans started passing anti-protest laws. That's actual cancel culture. So it, it's it's so selective. And he goes on to say, well these. Groups of people are totalitarianist, and they're far-left fascists. And um, I just need you to remember that this is the guy who wanted to deploy the U.S. military on our own streets and use the Insurrection Act. So he's accusing others of being authoritarian, where he literally just was advocating for the most authoritarian thing a U.S. president could ever do. So, you know... He's a bundle of contradictions on this stuff. That's obvious. So he's a giant hypocrite. But also, it's just a stupid strategy for 2020. It just is. I'm sorry. It just is. No matter how much you want to make this about cancel culture and about the culture war, it's just not going to work when you have an economic depression and when you have a pandemic. And if you think it works, you've got to take a couple step, steps back from politics because you're too you're too involved, you're too focused on it, you're drowning in politics if you really think that the culture war can override an economic war. (laughs) What's really an economic war. What's the total implosion of the American economy? What's a pandemic that we're the only country that's still being this devastated by it. Where now we keep hitting a new record every single day and he's ignoring it. He's ignoring it. You can't make this whole show about I care so deeply about Americans and you're like admitting behind the scenes, I'm just going to not touch the COVID-19 thing anymore and hope people get numb to it. Literally, that's a story that broke this morning. Behind the scenes, Trump and administration are like, we hope people get numb to this COVID thing. So you're going to let Americans die as you go out there and highlight the culture war and say, I care so deeply about Americans, so let me talk about the culture war. If you care so deeply about Americans... You'd be doing something to stop the spread of COVID nineteen. I mean, this is an embarrassment. In my estimation, in my experience, when you talk to people about the statue debate, for example, the protests, most people I talk to have very nuanced, complex views on cultural stuff. It's actually, I think, a pretty small percentage of people who are like all out one hundred percent on the side of the protests and the riots and like or 100% on the side of like law and order and shut it down and you know 10 years in prison for the statue for defacing a statue those extremes they make up a tiny percentage of the population most people have really complex you know thoughtful positions on this stuff where ah, i see this point but i don't necessarily see from it, from this perspective so for you to stake out a position on this and go all in on it it's just politically stupid man I'm, dog, I'm this close to pounding the gavel, son. I'm this close to pounding the gavel. I keep telling you guys, you know, Biden went from being way down in my estimation with Trump, a huge likelihood of re-election pre-COVID, then it was like 50-50. Then I had Biden at like 60% to 40%. I think Biden's like a 75% favorite now. You know, the only reason I hesitate on that is because you get the feeling that he's peaking now. And if he's peaking now, it's too early to peak. You you gotta peak by the election. So you don't want him to peak too early. So there's that concern, and there's the concern of what's gonna happen if there's three debates. You know, I think Trump will do better in a debate than Biden will. So you still got that asterisk here, but if the election were today, Biden's 75% favorite, for sure. So go ahead, man, keep going down the wrong path. He's seeking out all the wrong advice. He's too plugged in. He's too plugged in. And and it dulled his instincts. He's too drunk on One American News Network. He's too drunk on Fox News. They simply are not reflective of the broader population you your normie American, which is why Biden is winning in all the polls. But please, by all means, keep going down this path because it's not going to end well for you. All right, next. You guys are going to love this one. Because this, highlights a similar issue. Trump's Mount Rushmore speech was ridiculous, but towards the end of it, he went full hokey. So, you know, this is not vintage Trump campaign strategy. Let's watch and then we'll discuss further.
2: That to be American is to inherit the spirit of the most adventurous and confident people ever to walk the face of the earth. Americans are the people who pursued our manifest destiny across the ocean, into the uncharted wilderness, over the tallest mountains, and then into the skies, and even into the stars. We are the country of Andrew Jackson, Ulysses S. Grant, and Frederick Douglass. We are the land of Wild Bill Hickok and Buffalo Bill Cody. We are the nation that gave rise to the Wright Brothers, the Tuskegee Airmen, Harriet Tubman, Clara Barton, Jesse Owens, George Patton, General George Patton, the great Louis Armstrong, Alan Shepard, Elvis Presley, and Muhammad Mm -hmm. Ali. And only America could have produced them all. No other place. We are the culture that put up the Hoover Dam laid down the highways, and sculpted the skyline of Manhattan. We are the people who dreamed a spectacular dream. It was called Las Vegas in the Nevada desert, (laughs) who built up Miami from the Florida marsh, and who carved our heroes into the face of Mount Rushmore, Americans harnessed electricity, split the atom, and gave the world the telephone and the Internet. We settled the Wild West, won two world wars, landed American astronauts on the moon, and one day very soon, we will plant our flag on Mars. We gave the world the poetry of Walt Whitman, the stories of Mark Twain, the songs of Irving Berlin, the voice of Ella Fitzgerald, the style of Frank Sinatra, the comedy of Bob Hope, the power of the Saturn V rocket, the toughness of the Ford F-150, and the awesome might of the American aircraft carriers. Americans must never lose sight of this miraculous story. Never lose sight of it. Nobody has
1: ever done it like we have done it. All right, that uh, there's so much to say about this because honestly, that was abysmal. Every part of it was abysmal. I'm not just saying that from a personal perspective. I'm saying I'm saying that from a strategic perspective. So, this was and I don't even think that they realize it. I don't even think, you know, Trump really registered this. But what that was was a rejection of his 2016 strategy. That was the polar opposite philosophy in action. See, that was an American exceptionalist speech right there. That was him saying, oh, we're so perfect, we're so special, we're so amazing, and let's talk about how great we are. Now, in 2016, what did he say? The exact opposite. He said, we're a mess, our infrastructure is crumbling, we're doing all these stupid wars, we, we can't continue, our leaders are so stupid, what we're doing is so stupid, we need to make America great again. And what did Hillary say in response to that? Hillary said, whoa, 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 Donald, America is already great. So she was trying to play the role of the, you know, that's the Reagan mantra. Morning in America. America is already great. It's so wonderful. Trump rejected that and won. Hillary tried to harken back to Reagan and say, no, 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 we're already great. Trump 2020 is now Hillary of 2016. Trump is saying America is already great. See, again, what they don't realize is, and I don't think many strategists on the left or the right realize this, there's actually hope that's embedded in the pessimism of a Trump 2016-style campaign. Because when you're focusing on the problems and you're harping away on the problems in this country, really at its core, it's a call for extreme change. And when you express disgust at the current moment, it means what you're saying is, we got we to get away from this. We got to do something radically different. You know, it's um, necessity is the mother of invention, or however that, you know, that phrase goes. When you feel like things are so bad that you have no choice but to improve it and to go in a different direction, there's hope in that, even though you sound very pessimistic when you talk about the problems. When you endlessly suck America off, as he just did right there, that implies that, well, we don't really need to change much, because we're good as we are, that's the implication there, again, he might not realize it, but the implication is, whoa, 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 let's not change too much, let's not do too much different, because, listen to all these great things about us, that I'm going to lay out, if this is not going to land with the moment, he brings up how we're going to Mars, we're going to Mars, that's what you're, that's what you're going to say, okay, how about, you stop COVID first. How about you get people jobs first? How about you get people health care, or at the very least, stop people from hemorrhaging their health care as they are right now? Guys, we already had 28 million Americans without health care. Then we added at least another 20 million under his watch as a direct result of some of his policies, like the executive orders against Obamacare. We're hemorrhaging, People are hemorrhaging their health care in the middle of a pandemic. Over 120,000 Americans are dead, and that number's going up rapidly. It's going to spike quite a bit in the coming days because we keep hitting a record number of COVID cases every single day. We have the actual unemployment rate is above 20%. That's Great Depression territory. And you're talking about Mars? You're talking about Mars. See, now I'm reminding myself of Alan Iverson. we talk about practice? we talk about practice. Not the game, practice. We're talking about Mars? We're talking about Mars with a pandemic and a depression. And you're talking about Mars. How the hell did this clear a room of advisors and staffers to Trump? How the hell did this clear that room? Are you all the dumbest people on the planet? Republican strategists are just as bad as Democratic strategists. And I used to say Democratic strategists are the dumbest people in all politics. No, Republican strategists are just as dumb, if not dumber. How are you going to talk about going to Mars When we can't even beat COVID, we're the only country on the planet that, maybe us in Brazil, that are not fighting back against it effectively. Look at the chart of us versus, you know, the European countries. It is embarrassing. You're talking about going to Mars. We can't even stop our long unemployment lines. You're talking about going to Mars. Unbelievable. Then he goes on and he brings up Frank Sinatra, Elvis Presley. Frederick Douglass, wonderful, beautiful things. See, this is, you know, Tom Perez. I'm for good things and I'm against bad things, and I just want you to know that that's what it is. I'm for good things. I think good things are good and I think bad things are bad. Vote for me. Like, that's how vacuous this is. Frank Sinatra, Elvis Presley, Frederick Douglass, the Ford F-150, yes, good sir, yes. What are you babbling about? You're, you're going to nitpick. The positive things about America, by the way, a lot of the things are not even related to the government. you talk about entertainers and stuff. You're going to nitpick all the good things about America and just say it and present it like, Oh, yes! Yes, we're so wonderful! Yes! Who is this appealing to? Who is this appealing to? You're also just a massive bullshitter, too, obviously. Because if you really want to have a comprehensive picture of the United States of America... As Cornell West so uh, brilliantly explains, you got to bring up all the stuff. If you're going to bring up the good stuff, you're going to bring up the negative stuff, too. The war in Iraq. Just one example. Jim Crow. The nuking of innocent Japanese civilians. You know, the list goes on and on. We can bring up good things, we can bring up bad things. He's only bringing up the good things. This is 100% the strategy of America is already great. Now I'm going to try to go out there and play the role of look at me, I'm Mr. Presidential, I'm going to say some fancy words, and, you know, I'm going to bring up good things, and hopefully if I keep saying, I like puppies and rainbows and apple pie, then maybe you'll vote for me. (laughs) This is embarrassing. This is so embarrassing. The 2016 strategy was, everything's a mess, everything's terrible, I'm going to come in and fix it. How do you know I'm going to fix it? Because the establishment, the status quo has been screwing you all along. I'm not part of them. I'm coming in as an outsider. I'm going to drain the swamp. I'm going to make America great again. I'm against her stupid Iraq war. I'm against the stupid outsourcing deals, which bled hundreds of thousands, if not millions of jobs from this country. I'm against all that stuff. That was potent. That was powerful. Now, the guy can't govern his way out of a paper bag because people are hemorrhaging their health care during the pandemic. People are losing their jobs like crazy. Everything's falling apart. They got social unrest in the streets. He's got nowhere to go with it. So what does he do? He, he, this is Trump and his staff saying, all right, now it's time to try to sound like a standard politician. That's what this is. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, we're really spiraling in the polls. Just I I just I don't know, pull out the standard political playbook and try to sound like a normal politician. Do the whole American exceptionalist tap dance, suck America off a little bit. Hopefully it works. Somehow, even though it didn't work for Hillary when she said America's already great. I believe it was Michael Tracy who said in about the twenty sixteen election that Trump is our first post American exceptionalist president. The first one who came along and said, no, that's BS. We're actually not better than anybody else. Which actually, it's true. We're not better than anybody else. We're just another country. You know, we're uh, an imperial superpower, but we're just like any other. If some other country rises to become an imperial superpower, they're just like us. We're just like them. We're just people, right? But now he's trying to, oh my God, I'm spiraling in the polls. What am I going to do? It's chaos. It's mayhem. Nobody's steering the ship. Nobody knows what they're doing. So he's like. Uh, I guess I'll just do American exceptionalism stuff because that's safe. (laughs) Watch the spiral continue, son. (laughs) His strategy is go all in on the culture war, which is stupid, and now become an American exceptionalist. If you're still on the Trump train, goodness gracious, what are you doing? Like, what are you doing? This is so, it's embarrassing. I feel bad for you. I feel bad for you. He already proved he's a fraud and a charlatan and a con man and a scam artist. He's not actually an outsider, anti-establishment type who's going to fight back and look out for working people. Obviously, he's not that. Obviously, he's not that. And now he doesn't even have, like, the rhetorical aspects that made him a unique and interesting politician. This is a disaster, man. Trump could get absolutely blown out. Mark the date and time that I'm saying this sentence. Save this video and send it to me on election day. Okay? There are asterisks, again, if, if Biden gets destroyed in a debate, which he definitely could, or if Biden peaked too early, which is possible. But as of right now, all the evidence is suggesting Trump's going to get blown out. It, even the way he's running his campaign, I'm just, up. Uh, it's, I almost feel bad. It's so bad. Like, there's not a single ray of hope here. And it's amazing to me that they don't realize it and they're not adjusting accordingly. None of them have any idea what they're doing. All right, next. Here's a new anti-Trump ad from a group called Midas Touch. I believe that's how you pronounce it, although I could be wrong. Anyway, take a look and then we'll discuss.
3: My name is Jared Kushner. I am senior advisor to
2: President Donald J. Trump. One day he said, I want to come down and I want to have peace in the Middle East. It's a perfectly qualified team. How was that? No, no, I was joking.
4: The feeling in the room was thrilled. The proposal crafted by President Trump's son-in-law was considered dead on arrival. Donald Trump and Jared Kushner earned at least $82 million last year. Jared Kushner was denied security clearance over concerns about foreign influence private business interests. Did he opposed a grave national security concern to the country. Curious coincidence of Jared Kushner's failure to secure an investment
5: from Qatar people he advised Donald Trump to support the Saudi's damaging blockade against the country. The crown prince is boasting that Kushner was in his
4: pocket to coronavirus, hitting all kinds my I name, mean, White House officials have described your role as being something of running out of shadow force. Well, PPE has been sporadic. The notion of the federal stockpile was supposed to be our stockpile, it's not supposed to be state stockpiles that they then used. Now, more than 125,000 lives lost.
5: 40 million people
4: have lost their jobs. The federal government rose to the challenge, and this is a great success story. I
2: hope
4: that by July, the country's really rocking again. Jared's done an no, outstanding no, no, job.
1: That was a pretty good ad. Now, I just want to say up front, I don't know who this Midas Touch group is. Um, I'm always hesitant to, uh, to cover stuff like this because you never know. Like with the Lincoln Project, they had a handful of good ads, but the Lincoln Project is run by neocon thugs and goons and criminals. Like it is, it's anti Trump current Republicans or anti Trump former Republicans, but they're all neocons and they're all terrible. So, yeah, they had a handful of good ads, but now you're seeing just how deranged they are with their, like, their red-baiting of Trump, and they're, like, going all in on the Trump-Russia stuff, and it's just abysmal and pathetic. Now, I happen to know this group might have touched, because I saw another one of their ads. They're also deranged with Russiagate conspiracy theory nonsense, and so I hate that, that this has infected Democratic politics so thoroughly that it's just, like, a default go-to For anybody involved in democratic politics that you have to be like, yeah, I think Trump's a Manchurian candidate. Trump's a Manchurian candidate? Oh, totally. He's run by Vladimir Putin. You sound like a bunch of idiots. This sounds just as stupid as birtherism did. Okay? It really does. I know that, you know, that's not politically correct to say, but it's true. This is is the democratic version of Benghazi or the democratic version of birtherism for sure. But look, I digress. Point is, on this specific ad, this is good. Why? Why is it so good? Guys, it's bread and butter. You know what I mean by that? I mean it's just it is painting Trump and Jared and his staff and his people as corrupt, nepotistic idiots. That's it. That's it. Oftentimes in politics, people tend to make things way too complicated. When you just gotta, it's like you know the old Clinton strategy from back in the day: it's the economy, stupid or jobs, 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 like very simple, straightforward messages. This message is Trump put his son-in-law in in charge of all this stuff. The guy's an idiot and doesn't know his ass from his elbow, to steal a phrase from my father. My dad used to say that all the time. He doesn't know his ass from his elbow. And this is all nepotism, and this is all corrupt. And he's got personal dealings. Him and Ivanka made $82 million in one year. Hmm, I wonder if all that was on the up and up. As you're the head of many important negotiations in the government, you're dealing with all these different aspects of U.S. policy, and you made $82 million. Interesting! Interesting. You shouldn't be allowed to make anything. If you're a public servant, you should be a public servant. Full stop. They shouldn't have investments. They shouldn't have other jobs, other businesses. If you're a public servant, you should be a public servant. Full stop. Or else it's too ripe for corruption. And that's what happened. So this is the ad, is the underlying point here is, oh, they're corrupt. They're nepotistic idiots. That lands. I don't care who you show that to. Even hardcore Republicans are going to go, yeah, it's kind of devastating. Now, they might still ignore it and outwardly not admit it, but inside they're like, yeah, that one hurts. That one hurts. Don't overcomplicate politics. Don't overcomplicate it. It's actually very simple. And one of my biggest issues with my fellow lefties is sometimes, keep it real, man, people on the left get lost up their own ass. <laughs> they do. They love the smell of their own farts, and they love to you know, t- talk in a way where everyday people just don't understand what the hell you're saying. Why? Why are you doing that? Why are you doing that? Talk like a normal person. It'll get through. Talk like a n- That's one of the most important things in politics, and it's one, of the, the, it's one of the things the left does the least, is just be a normie person. Be an average person talk like a regular person, you know, and this hits that note, it hits the note of very simple, this is nepotism, these are idiots, and they're also massively corrupt, that's it, that's it, that's effective, man, that's effective, so anyway, that's my little spiel on this ad, Uh, more ads like this are going to help, and as always, my advice to Biden is just keep hiding in the basement, because it's working, Alright, next. Alright, I know all you were waiting for. It. Well here it is. Here it is, bitch. Kanye West tweeted that he's running for president. Here's what he said. We must now realize the promise of America by trusting God, unifying our vision, and building our future. I am running for president of the United States. Hashtag twenty twenty vision. Okay, um Kanye, you already sound like you're bullshitting. <laughs> Like It's supposed to be the case that if somebody's an outsider and they get involved in politics, it's like you get involved in politics specifically because you don't want to be a bullshitter. I'm going to read that one more time because it sounds exactly like a politician saying something, and it means nothing. We must now realize the promise of America by trusting God. We must now realize the promise of America by trusting God. Does that mean you want everybody in the country to be religious? That's what it sounds like. The way we realize the promise of America is by trusting God. What if you don't believe in God? I don't believe in God. Or what if you're part of a different religion that doesn't believe in the same God you believe in, Kanye? What about that? What if you believe multiple gods? If you're in public life or a secular country, you should probably leave the whole religion thing on the side. But he brings up the religion thing. Then he says, unifying our vision and building our future. How? Unifying our vision how? So we're all supposed to believe the same thing? That's what unifying a vision means. I don't think that's a good thing. We should disagree. We should have debates unifying our vision, and building our future. But how do we build a future? I mean, the classic right-left divide is, should we have more government focused on fixing the problems and creating a better society, or should we have less government and more private enterprise? Like, how do you want to build our future? With more government, less government? Like, there's a lot that that entails. I'm just, you know, scratching the surface here. So he already sounds like a politician. He already sounds like he's bullshitting. Now, before we continue, let me just say, is he going to run for president? Who knows? Who knows if he's actually going to do it? Why? Well, Kid Rock just did the stupid thing where he's, I'm going to run for Senate. I'm going to run. I'm going to run. And everybody wrote articles about it. And everybody spoke about it on top. And then he didn't run. It was just some promotional nonsense. Kanye could easily do the same thing. You know, this is, oh, I'm running for president. (laughs) Ah, kidding. But anyway, here's my new album. That's very possible, probably likely. Now, um, the reason why Elon Musk is here is because, he responded and said, you have my full support. It was, like, instantaneous. It was like, Connie's like, I'm running for president. Elon Ryan is ah, right underneath. You have my full support. So they definitely, when they had this meeting, Connie was like, hey, man, I'm going to run for president. And Elon's like, I, just, I just, yeah, that's good. <laughs> you like my impressions? I think they're pretty good. Anyway, um, yeah, stop. Just go away. all Both you guys, go away. I'm um, so, Elon Musk is like oprah for awkward white dudes i'm so sick of him he's so obnoxious and and kanye west is like here's the deal anybody who has to tell you they're a genius is not a genius that's a general rule in life you know who says that all the time trump is he a genius now you could say kanye's got amazing music he's great in that respect maybe he's a musical genius i guess but when somebody i'm a genius i'm a genius you can be sure they're not a genius. I don't think Bertrand Russell or Albert Einstein were going around saying, you know I'm a genius. They didn't have to say it because everybody knew. Noam Chomsky isn't stunting on people saying, you know I'm a genius, right? (laughs) That's not how it works. So anyway, I'm going to get a lot of hate for this video, but I simply do not care. Anyway, um, so USA Today says the following. I love this. They say, there is no evidence West has a campaign organization, nor is there any indication he has filed papers with the Federal Election Commission just four months before the November 3rd election. So in other words, he tweeted that he ain't doing Dickie McGee's act behind the scenes, which would indicate he's not really serious about it. It's more of a promotional stunt. Um, they go on to say the filing deadlines for an independent presidential candidate in many states have either passed or are coming up soon. Qualifying deadlines have passed in, get this, Texas, North Carolina, New York, Maine, New Mexico, and Indiana. The last deadlines are in early September, just two months away, and candidates have to get thousands of people to sign petitions in each state in order to get on the ballot. So he's not going to be on the ballot in those states, so what's the point? And those are, there are a lot of states there that he's already not going to be on the ballot. On. So what's the, what's the point? What's the point? Now people are speculating. Oh, he's just trying to help Trump by taking some votes from Biden, and he's helping his buddy Trump out. Do you really think that Kanye West is having some sort of, you know, scheming plan behind the scenes that's not readily apparent at face value? No. It, what he's doing is what he's doing. It's it's either. I just want to generate as much press and attention as possible because I'm Kanye and I'm a narcissist and it'll help with my album sales. Or it's I actually want to run for president and try to win and he has no idea that he has no shot. <laughs> it's one or the other. I highly doubt it's a, some sort of chess, some sort of pro-Trump chess move, even though we all know he is generally pro-Trump and we saw the whole fiasco with him in the... Uh, the Oval Office and stuff, and I like Trump because he's dragging energy, and I'm also dragging energy. <laughs> That's one of the things that he
0: said.
1: <laughs> Why not? Tw- this, is some, this is exactly like 2020 stuff that I would expect. Every time I see a new crazy story in 2020, I'm always like, oh, what do you expect? I wouldn't be surprised even in the slightest if a super volcano erupted. Not even a little bit. I wouldn't be surprised even a little bit. There was a story the other day I saw... Apparently, I believe it was in Mongolia, the Black Plague reappeared because people were eating some sort of animal raw. Oh, God. So this is exactly like 2020. So what I say in response to it is, sure, why not? Go ahead, Kanye. Please, go right ahead and run. (laughs) It'll give me a lot of stuff to talk about. I honestly think we're at the point where even if Kanye ran and even if Kanye took some votes from Biden – The numbers as such already have Biden winning by a comfortable margin, even with Kanye jumping in and potentially stealing votes from Biden, even though I don't think that that would necessarily happen. But even if he did, it wouldn't be enough. I still think Biden would win as the polls exist right now. So this is one of those stories I didn't even want to talk about, but I had to talk about it because it's politically involved and it's got Kanye and you know, my my beat is politics, so here we are. But um, it looks like And also, just hold on here, if they do run, it would be a they. It would probably be Kanye and Elon Musk. I would say stranger things have happened, but no, nothing stranger has ever happened. (laughs) This is as strange as it gets, along with Trump already being president, along with a handful of other things. This is uh, right in line with this fantasy simulation world that we live in. All right, let me do one more, and then we'll take a quick break. President Trump is struggling with the key demo for him of old people. Hmm. So CNN went to a Florida retirement community and spoke to the voters. Watch this.
3: Florida today reported a record high for coronavirus cases, more than 10,000 new infections, and the pandemic seems to be impacting voters' choices. CNN's Jeff Delany talked to some longtime Republicans who say they will not vote for Trump because of his response to the pandemic. Based on my friends,
4: he doesn't have a chance. He's, he blew it. John Dudley is talking about President Trump, who he supported four years ago, but won't again.
0: He had
2: everything. We were so excited in the beginning. A businessman to run our country like a business, and it hasn't happened. All he succeeded in doing was he juiced
4: up the stock market, and uh, now that's gone to pot because of the coronavirus. Dudley is a retired banker and the face of a new Trump campaign worry losing the senior vote amid summertime signs of anxiety from the beach to testing sites for soaring COVID cases. Here in Florida, people 65 and older made up 21% of the vote in 2016. Trump won that group by 17 points. Polls now show Joe Biden with an edge among seniors in key battleground states and nationally. For Trump, there is virtually no path to winning without Florida which make places like the on-top-of-the-world retirement community critical terrain. I had to change parties. I could not do this anymore. Paula Schelling abandoned the Republican Party. Marcia Lund still considers herself a Republican, but not a oh, Trump one.
5: I hope that I was wrong in not voting for him and that he would turn out to be a great president. But it didn't happen.
4: <laughs> Even loyal Trump supporter Robert Blethen wishes the president would do one thing. Our president should wear match. Because, uh, you know, we're, we're doing it. We're, you know, it, it's a, a, we're worse support in him On Florida's Gulf Coast, Trump won Pinellas County by one percentage point, the same margin he carried the state. Since then, Democrats have seen a new surge in voter registration.
5: There are more Democrats now than there used to be in years past.
4: Do you know any people who voted for Trump last time who are not going to this time? Uh, actually, I know several
3: including my son and grandson.
1: Listen, I told you, I told you, I love this segment because it verifies something that I've been arguing on this show for a long time. Trump is going all in on the culture war as his 2020 strategy, and I told you the culture war is an ancillary issue. The only people who care more about that than these other problems are people who are hardcore political junkies and are either brainwashed by Fox News or are on the left and are strongly in the Black Lives Matter movement, there's only a small percentage of people who really put the cultural war stuff front and center. Most normal people are like, hey dog, there's a pandemic still roaring. We have over 120,000 Americans dead. And that number is gonna rise dramatically because we just hit another single day record. Every day is a new single day record for um, COVID cases with new testing. So normal people, even ones who voted for Trump the last time, are like, whoa, 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 whoa. You don't even have this pandemic under control, and you're talking about statues? You're talking about statues. Trump gave a speech the other night, and he was talking about going to Mars. 20 million people just lost their health insurance during a pandemic, and you're talking about Mars. So average, normie people are just like, what are you, what are you doing? What are, you're trying too hard. You're missing the mark. You're focusing on the wrong issues. You cannot focus on cultural nonsense when we have a pandemic and a Great Depression. Turns out it just falls by the wayside. People don't really care that much in one direction or the other when it comes to statues when you have a pandemic and a depression, this stuff is so obvious. Now, there's one, other, there's one other point to add to this. So point number one is the COVID failure of Trump is everything. And when you compare the U.S. to other countries, our failure is so painfully obvious that it's embarrassing. That we still have soaring cases and other countries relatively have it under control, with a few exceptions. Um, but the overwhelming majority of the world has it under control, and we're just a mess. So the COVID failure is everything to these people. But beyond that, people don't viscerally hate Joe Biden in the same way that they viscerally hated Hillary. They just don't. Now, Hillary had the chance to also not be viscerally hated if she ran a better campaign. You know, Biden, the low-key brilliance of Biden's strategy is he's hiding. And when you hide... People don't fill in the blank of you not being there with the worst version of you. You know what I mean? It's not like with Biden gone that people are focusing on the worst aspects of Biden. They're just not thinking about Biden. So, and that helps him. Absence makes the heart grow fonder. So people don't viscerally hate him in the way that they viscerally hated Hillary. Maybe Hillary should have hid for the entire campaign. and Maybe she would be president today if that was the case. But they just don't hate him in the same way that people hated Hillary. So the fact that COVID is still destroying the country and we have an economic depression and real unemployment is over 20%, just those two things and the fact that people don't hate Biden, that's it, that's it. That's game, set, match, son. So, And now you see it from people who were big Trump supporters. You'd be surprised. There's only maybe 30 to 35% of the country that are really the hardcore, I would say like Trump cultists who would just never abandon him. And every criticism of him is fake news. And no, that's, that's a relatively small percentage. It really is. And now you're seeing what happens when he's unable to expand that coalition and that tent by being somewhat normal and being focusing on the serious things. How you don't focus on COVID for like two months and do the daily press conferences Then just abandon it, and now we have record cases. You were doing press conferences every day when there were far fewer cases per day. (laughs) It it makes no sense. He's like a kid who was playing with a toy and then just like, fuck this toy, and grabs a new one. And it's like, well, what about the old, uh, I don't even, what is that? I don't even know what that is. What are you talking about, bro? Is that even my toy? It's like he's acting out with COVID. He's like, COVID? COVID? I don't know what COVID is. COVID? Is that, is that some sort of New album or something? Is that a band? Covid. What's COVID nineteen? Oh, you know COVID nineteen. What? That's his strategy on COVID. <laughs> oh, this is, it's it's really the the slow torturous destruction of Trump, and it is interesting to watch. All right, let's take a break. When we come back. Fox News fell for an obvious troll job. This is so lovely and wonderful. And then um, a Republican representative went went on Fox News to talk about Trump and Russia and showed the exact problem with this obsession. So don't go anywhere, guys. We'll be back with all that and much, much more. I'm back, everybody. What's up? All right. Fox News. Unable to keep up with the times and the kids trolling them and making fun of them. So this, uh, (laughs) this is a fun story, if I don't say so myself. All right, let me pull it up. Here we go. Fox News fell for the most obvious troll job of all time. This is enjoyable.
5: I'd like to, uh, let's talk about Ohio a little bit because they've got a few things going on. First, um, let's talk about Cleveland where they have decided, the city council um, is looking at a petition right now to replace a statue of Christopher Columbus with a statue of Chef Boyardi. And many people may not realize that actually was a real person, an Italian immigrant. And I can put up on the screen what they're saying about this, and the reasons behind this on the petition, it says, Chef Boyardee has been a go-to inexpensive meal for poor families for generations. During the current pandemic of 2020, Stores routinely sold out of many Chef Boyardee products due to the high demand. He truly created a fast, easy meal anyone can enjoy. Chef Boyardee is a much better role model. Then, let's go now to Columbus, Ohio, where 25,000 signatures have hit a petition there to change the name of the city after an idea by chef, famous chef and TV host Guy Fieri to Town. Let me read a little bit from that petition here. Quote, for one, it honors Central Ohio's proud heritage as a culinary crossroads and one of the nation's largest test markets for the food industry. Secondly, celebrity, Chef celebrity, excuse me, Guy Fieri was born in Columbus, so naming the city in honor of him, he's such a good dude, really, would be superior <laughs> to the current nomenclature. <laughs> I guess bring you this is something that began with the death of George Floyd on the streets of Minneapolis, and here we are talking about Flavor Town. How much of this is about social justice anymore?
6: Well, exactly right. I mean, it just sort of shows the length to which we've gone and how fast it's gone from a very, <clears throat> very specific thing where we talked about police uh, excessive use of force by police, police brutality, uh, needing police reform, uh, to to now, you know, obviously ripping down statues and talking about renaming towns. I, I'm not sure that this is this is helping. Uh, achieve any of the goals of the left. In fact, it's probably creating more of a backlash in places like Ohio and some of these Midwestern states where, um, you know, Ohio is a place that's a, a relatively conservative state now. President Trump won it by eight points, and, and this sort of plays into uh, the sort of overreach, I think, and it's going to be part of the 2020 campaign.
5: Yeah, the message can get lost in there because this started out with something completely different, and I can't imagine that people are actually protesting out there to
0: name um, a city after a Guy Fieri idea. Come on, bro. <laughs> Come on, dog. What are you doing? How do you not know?
1: Oh, they want to replace Christopher Columbus with Chef Boyardee.
0: <laughs> they think this is serious.
1: And they want to change Columbus, Ohio to Flavortown, Ohio. Come on, man! How do you not know that that's trolling? I swear, boomers are so gullible. And guys, listen, this is why—like the whole fake news problem—it's real. Like there is a real issue with fake news being pervasive, like fake news on Facebook, for example. Now, what you do about that is a separate question. I think too many people want, you know, Silicon Valley billionaires to censor our content and filter it and control it and deplatform people. So, I, you know, how you how you handle that is a different question. But, is there a fake news issue? Yes. And why is that? Because boomers are so gullible that they believe like random memes they find on Facebook that make preposterous claims. They believe like these websites that are so obviously not serious, but they they cite them as if they're real news sources. Fox News they it got somehow it got past the producers, somehow the host didn't object to it in production for the show. How are you going to seriously cover a story about replacing Columbus with Chef Boyardee and changing Columbus, Ohio to Flavortown? How are you going to seriously cover that story? How are you going to seriously cover that story? I it it I, it's amazing that anything works at all, because people are morons. <laughs> Seriously, it's amazing that anything functions. This is like when they asked the internet, like, oh, what should we name... I guess it was some sort of cruise liner or boat or whatever, and they asked the internet. The internet was like, we're going to name it Bodie McBowface. <laughs> like, they're all, everybody's just fucking around, bro. Everybody's just messing around. Jesus Christ. See, what... In real life, there is a lot, like, people have to be uptight a lot. you got to go to your job and fucking sit there all day and type. No, yes, I'm a very normal, serious person, yes. <laughs> and you, you can't let loose. You can't be yourself. So when you're finally given an out, like, to do something silly, everybody's like, hell yeah, let's fuck it. Yeah, fuck it. Chef RD. let's go. <laughs> By the way, on a serious note, yeah, you can pull down the statues of Columbus. Columbus was, like, literally a genocider. Literally. (laughs) So, like, if there's ever, I get it that the whole statue debate is is a little more complex and nuanced than I could give credence to in a random YouTube segment here. But, you know, if there is any line at all, he's definitely on the wrong side of that line, Christopher Columbus. Because, you know, when you actually read what he really did, it's like, ooh, ooh. Like, he wasn't just a, you know, it's not like he just stumbled across America and was like, ooh, here I am, I found it. No, it was like vicious, vicious genocider is is what he is. So anyway, but I digress from that. How gullible are these people, man? But, I mean, I guess we shouldn't be too surprised. This is coming from the same network that looked at Obama, uh, Barack Obama and Michelle Obama do a pound, and they said, is that a terrorist fist jab? Poisoning the minds of of old people across the country. By the way, don't get it twisted. There are thousands and thousands of 72-year-old men watching this segment getting really angry. Do you want to
2: tear down the Columbus statue and put Chef Boyardee not on my watch from my cold, dead hands? Where's my oatmeal and my pills? I need my pills, too. All right, next.
6: All right, next.
1: A Republican representative went on Fox News to talk about Trump and Russia. I don't know if you heard of it. It's kind of a big story that keeps popping its head up over you know, the course of his first term. And um, this congressman's response is just exactly the problem with this issue. It's exactly what I would expect to happen in Washington, D.C. And this is why both parties suck so bad. Watch this, and then we'll discuss.
2: From what I hear, and I hear it pretty good, uh, the intelligence people didn't even many of them didn't believe it happened at all. I think it's a hoax. I think it's a hoax by the newspapers and the Democrats.
3: President Trump calling the New York Times report that Russia offered bounties to Taliban fighters to kill American soldiers a hoax. This coming is Secretary of State Mike Pompeo says that Russians engaged in Afghanistan is, quote, nothing new. Joining me now is. To discuss all this, Pennsylvania Representative Guy Reschenthaler. He serves in a House subcommittee on international terrorism, and we are pleased to have him. Congressman, good to see you again. Thanks for being David, here. Thanks, thanks for having me on, David. Let's be specific about what I think the president is referring to as a hoax. It's not necessarily the story of, Ru- of Russia involvement in, in Afghanistan with the Taliban. It's, it's that he was briefed. This is what the original story said, that he was briefed Uh, about the story and refused to do anything about it. I think that's what he's referring
6: to as the hoax of the story. Do you agree? I believe he's referring to that and the fact that this was written on, or from what we're being told, this was written on his briefing, but he was being verbally briefed, and the briefer never articulated that talking point. So the president actually did not receive that information so I think that's what the president is talking about but, but in fact me, by the way yes. forgive me for interrupting but a CIA officer
3: who's not named for obvious reasons confirmed that the president was not briefed uh, because there wasn't enough uh, validating information for that particular
6: briefing correct yes yeah, so Well, I was going to say the information before it gets to the president has, has got to be vetted, corroborated, and only the evidence that is early the material that has evidence before it and those facts get to the president. And again, you can't fault him for the fact that the CIA briefer did not actually brief him on this. But you know what, David? You know who did, did have actual actionable intelligence on Russia and other actors? That's Biden and Obama, because under the Obama administration, they actually had intel because it happened that Russia was going to annex part of Ukraine, Crimea, and Obama and Biden did nothing. President Trump, though, sent the Ukrainians Javelin missiles, lethal aid. So that's the difference. And Biden and Obama also knew that there were threats on Benghazi. They sat back and did nothing. They knew that ISIS was running roughshod over Iraq and Syria. They did nothing. Compare that with President Trump, who's taken strong action. And when we had the chance to take out Soleimani, somebody who has killed American soldiers or orchestrated the death of over 600 Americans, President Trump took out Soleimani. And President Trump took out al-Baghdadi with ISIS. So President Trump's record is incredible on these issues. So if Biden wants to pick this fight and have an argument over who's tougher on national security and national defense, we'll take that any day because President Trump will win that argument any day.
1: He's bragging Trump is a hawkish neocon. He's bragging that Trump is tough on national security. See, this is the problem. With Russiagate, you had the Democrats screaming to Trump, hey, man. What are you gonna do? You're just gonna sit back? You're just gonna sit back and, and, and let Putin run roughshod over you? Is that what you're gonna do? I think maybe you should stand up to him. I think maybe you should do something. I think maybe you should fight back. What are you, weak? Are you weak? Is that what it is? You don't wanna fight back? You don't wanna fight back? Why don't you wanna fight back? Is it because he's controlling you? Is that why? So the incentive is Trump to escalate, Trump to be more aggressive and bellicose and hawkish. And I don't want that. I actually believe in peace. I never want to use our military unless it's for self-defense against imminent threat of attack. But the Democrats are begging Trump, who they know is a thin-skinned buffoon idiot, they're begging him to escalate more with a nuclear-armed country. Because they don't care. They would rather resist from the right than resist from the left, which means they are trying to claim the mantle of neoconservative, beliefs and and of a hawkish approach to foreign policy that's what i hate about this now they opened up a lane for republicans if they wanted to to come out and say whoa 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 no you guys are wrong being hawkish is a bad idea especially with a nuclear armed country we want to go the opposite direction we want peace we want you know maybe economic trade so that we can improve our relationship we want to um, we have a more stable world if there isn't an escalating threat between nuclear-armed powers. So let's go in that direction. Instead of doing that, what does this Republican representative do? He goes, no, actually, Democrats, you're more weak on foreign policy, and Trump is strong, and I want Trump to be stronger, too. And so Trump sent lethal aid to Ukraine. By the way, bringing it up as if that's obviously a good thing, and because Obama, Obama didn't do that, which, by the way, I think Obama was right on, And then Trump did send lethal aid to to Ukraine, and just so everybody understands, a lot of the rebels fighting in Ukraine have links to neo-Nazis, like they are some literal neo-Nazi groups. This is who we're arming, in the same way that we always arm al-Qaeda to topple dictators we don't like. This is exactly what happened here. We're arming neo-Nazis because we don't like Putin. Trump did that. This guy's bragging about it. Not this guy. Obviously, he's not over my shoulder. But that Republican representative you just saw is bragging about it. Isn't that incredible? Uh, Bragging about an objectively terrible thing, about arming people who we don't even know who the hell they are. We don't know enough about them, sending them arms so they can stand up against Russia. Then he brags about Trump murdering the Iranian general in contravention of international law and almost sparking literal World War III. He's bragging about that. See, this is the problem. Now you have Democrats and Republicans rushing to be more hawkish, not just on Russia, but on all foreign policy. That's viewed as the duh position. That's viewed as the reasonable position. That's viewed as the position that everybody agrees to. Everybody agrees we've got to be hawkish. Now the question is, who's going to be more hawkish? Because that's better the more hawkish you are. This is the framework. This is the mindset. So deranged, man. I guarantee you, there's no single mothers, you know, in the middle of Cleveland going, you know, I really wish we'd do more war. Nobody's doing that, but that's what these guys want. Um, And then finally, they are trying to cover for Trump. Trump said, oh, I think it's fake news, talking about this Russia story. They go out there and say, no, 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 Trump doesn't mean that it's fake news that there were Russian bounties on our soldiers. He means it's fake news because they didn't tell him that in the briefings. And so that's the fake news part of it, is that they didn't give him the proper information. That's what they're claiming. But no, I actually think when Trump says it's fake news, he's referring to Russian bounties on our soldiers being fake news. And I think he's right about it. These are the same intelligence agencies and intelligence officials who've lied to us over and over. They lied to us about the Iraq war, told us Saddam was working with al-Qaeda. That was nonsense. Saddam has weapons of mass destruction. That was also nonsense. These guys are notorious liars. So when he says it's fake news, I think he means the Russian bounties are fake news. They didn't actually happen. The Taliban doesn't need any extra incentive to fight us. They've been fighting us for 19 goddamn years because we're in their country. So they don't need any extra incentive. So he says it's fake news. I think he's right about that. But the Republicans know in Washington, D.C., it's politically incorrect to tell the truth on that. So what do they do? No, no, no. He's not saying that the Russian bounties are fake news. He's saying that it's fake news that because they didn't tell him about it when they should have told him about it. So they can't even question the assumptions. They have to mindlessly agree that... Well, obviously, there are Russian bounties on our soldiers, which is nothing but the intelligence community's attempt to keep us in Afghanistan longer. They portray Trump as weak, which means he says we got to stay in Afghanistan longer. And also, it keeps us on that permanent war footing with, uh, with Putin and Russia. And as long as we're in that permanent war footing, they get endless funding in the intelligence community. So, Cold War all over again, and everybody's rushing to be more hawkish, and I hate it. All right, next. Here we go. So if you didn't think that Big Pharma was a comic book villain yet, I have another story for you here. Pharma is suing to block Minnesota's new insulin access law. The Alex Smith Insulin Affordability Act was passed in honor of a 26-year-old who died rationing insulin. The law would have taken effect today, Pharma's fighting it during a pandemic. So the Star Tribune says, Pharmaceutical Industry Group sues to stop Minnesota's new insulin aid program. Lawsuit says Minnesota's new program takes drug makers' property without compensation. (laughs) Compensation, okay. So uh, this new law requires insulin manufacturers to supply the drug or reimburse pharmacies giving out insulin. And um, companies that fail to provide the drug face fines. So that's what this was. Now, Pharma responded to this by saying, quote, a state cannot simply commandeer private property to achieve its public policy goals. Actually, yes they can, but I digress. And and Pharma's complaint filed Tuesday in District Court continued, the The Takings Clause of the Fifth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution prohibits states from attempting to solve societal problems in this draconian manner. It's draconian to get people cheaper insulin. What's not draconian is withholding the insulin because of price and then somebody dying because they can't afford it. That's not draconian. What's draconian is making it cheaper for people. Okay. Just to put this in perspective for everybody, a vial of insulin here in the U.S. is about $320. You know what it is in Canada? $30. There are many people rationing their insulin. In fact, Charles Booker, who unfortunately just lost in Kentucky, barely lost, um, he's rationed insulin before. This is a crisis. It's an absolute crisis. People cannot get the life-saving medicine that they need in this country because our system is totally broken and rotten and corrupt. See, this is what happens when you have big pharma pay the politicians at the national level, and then the politicians set the laws in the benefit of pharma and against the people. I mean, Washington, D.C. is basically run by the military industrial complex, Wall Street, Big Pharma, and the for-profit health insurance companies. That's Washington, D.C. There's a reason why all the laws are in their benefit, are in their interest. Because they own the politicians. They funded the politicians. So the politicians know, hey, I scratch your back, you scratch mine. You gave me money, I'm going to look out for you. So the people are an afterthought. Really, they're protecting those industries. I mean, go back look at what happened with the CARES Act, with the COVID bailouts, with what the Federal Reserve is doing. Everybody rushed in to bail out the corporations wasn't well, the people. People are an afterthought. All right, we'll give you one-time payment, $1,200, crumbs, but you really are on your own. Anyway, let's do total corporate socialism and let these corporations loot the treasury, if they so please. The Democrats' response to COVID-19 was, let's subsidize COBRA, which is nothing but a giant giveaway to the health insurance companies. This is what we're dealing with. We're dealing with a corporatocracy. We're dealing with a government of, by, and for the elite, wealthy corporations. And now you have state law that stood up to them. By the way, credit to those politicians at the state level in Minnesota who did the right thing on this. And pharma goes, no, we disagree. We're going to take it to the courts. They're suing and saying, no, it's unconstitutional for you to reduce the price of insulin with this program. It's unconstitutional. Of course it's not. The government, of course, has the ability to do that. The government has the ability, if they so please, to nationalize your punk ass which gets to my main point. I I say it now in virtually every single segment where we talk about stuff like this, but you absolutely need to fully nationalize the entire health sector. Now, I understand some people might think that sounds extreme. I assure you it's the opposite. I assure you what's extreme is this, what we have right now. Case in point, I rest my case, Your Honor. This story alone proves my point. There are certain things that are simply not fit for the private sector and the profit motive. They they just don't work. Doesn't fit, doesn't work. The incentive structure is all messed up. Prisons is one of those things. The military. Everybody understands you can't have mercenary armies everywhere because who the hell are they beholden to? You need to have, you know, a military beholden to the people as part of the government. Or else you have, you know, warring gangs in the streets. Everybody gets it, that certain things, the profit motive and the private marketplace, it's not cut out for. This is on that same list. You should totally nationalize the healthcare system, totally nationalize big pharma. Just so you understand, we pay for all, for most of the drugs that get created in the first place. Tax money goes towards these universities where this research gets done they create all of these wonderful new treatments, and then pharma swoops in, gets the rights to it, and then sells it back at a profit and price gouges you. We just saw this with, I think it was remdesivir. We spent over $100 million, the taxpayers did, and then they turn around and go, all right, well, now big pharma's taking it, the rights to it, and it's going to cost you about $3,200 uh, for the treatment. So they shake us down two ways. They shake you down in the sense that they take your tax money and fund the research, and then they shake you down afterwards by privatizing it and price gouging you. Guys, this is what we need movements over. This is what we need movements over. This needs to unify the working class. Everybody needs to realize. Black, white, brown, every shade of human being. They divide and conquer us using things like race. It's easy. It's easy for the elite, the billionaires and the corporations, to divide us along racial lines and distract from the crimes that they're doing. And they are crimes. Make no mistake about it. And this is how low they are. They are suing to stop an insulin affordability program. Think about how low that is. As people... Many people, I'm sure, die because they ration insulin all the time. Unacceptable, man. You're telling me all this tax money we pay. We can't have health care. We can't have free college. We can't have an infrastructure that's actually half decent. Sorry, that money's got to go to Wall Street, bailouts, and subsidies, and the military-industrial complex. That's basically what they're telling us. Well, we need to band together, organize, and say hell no. We need to make very clear demands. One of the demands should be a single-payer healthcare system, of course. I think another demand should be total nationalization of the health sector. It's the only way to stop this. It's the only way to stop this. You know, this is price gouging and profiteering off of health and death. If there was ever anything that needed to be outside of the profit motive, it is this. That's clear. All right, next. Race has been dominating the national dialogue recently since the killing of George Floyd. And um, this book here, White Fragility, has skyrocketed to become a number one bestseller. Um, Now, I have no idea how this became the main thing that people ran to in the wake of the murder of George Floyd. Um, There's a lot of brilliant people out there doing work on racial justice who are substantively adding to the conversation. This is not that. This is what I call the corporatization of anti-racism, and it is just as hollow as you'd expect. So the whole point of this is race and problems with race and racism, it's all an individual interpersonal problem. And white fragility, basically white people are born being fragile on this issue of race. And if you try to counter that and say, no, 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 I'm not racist, that's just further evidence of your white fragility. And it's basically like a religious dogma and doctrine that says the only way we fight this is to be ever vigilant against it at the individual and personal level. So you always have to check yourself, check your privilege, monitor your words, and spend a lifetime combating what's viewed as this totally inherent instinct of white people to be racist, effectively. Now... The problem with this, I mean, there's many problems with this mindset and with this philosophy, but it totally disregards systemic racism, which is the pervasive form of racism, which has incredibly deleterious effects on society and on communities of color. If you make it just an individual, interpersonal problem, then the only thing you have to do, the only thing everybody has to do is be like those Hollywood white liberals who feel white guilt all the time and express it nonstop and also hire Robin DiAngelo. So isn't that, isn't that interesting? Her philosophy is solved by her stepping in and doing these diversity training classes and sensitivity training classes, um, that repeats her mantras and her philosophy over and over. And if this is the solution to the problem, then all that any corporation has to do is hire a diversity trainer and sufficiently scold the people and also set up new Orwellian systems where you know you get fired for uttering things that seem uh, politically incorrect at the time. Like if somebody steps up and says, hey man, I disagree with the fact that all uh, voice actors for characters of color in cartoons need to be people of color. Like, I don't think that the guy who played Cleveland should have stepped down. In this new society we're setting up, where race is defined as an individual interpersonal problem, you uh, you could easily have that person be fired. You could have mass firings for people expressing opinions that are off base ever so slightly. So this is really a dangerous precedent that we're setting, and it's easy for corporations to use this to scold their workers, fire people who they don't like, and to act like, no, 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 ignore our Cambodian and Vietnamese child slaves who are making our product, because we have diversity training here in the U.S., and we fire people if they say things even slightly off base, so we're we're good, right? We're good. So Axios says the following, the data in sociology show pretty clearly, pretty conclusively, excuse me, that these corporate diversity trainings do not work. And then, you know, says why diversity training fails to put a dent in racism. So they say in the piece, when conducted as one-time sessions, diversity training can actually have negative effects on company culture. Quote, the positive effects of diversity training rarely last beyond a day or two, and a number of studies suggest that it can activate bias or spark a backlash. Frank Dobbin and Alexandra Caleb write in the Harvard Business Review quote, often these trainings instill frustration and resentment in the people who are required to attend, says Wingfield and black workers or other workers of color often feel that initiatives are neither genuine nor capable of addressing underlying problems, she says. The bottom line, it's an easy way to do something without doing a lot, Wingfield says. It takes a lot more time to think about the hiring practices, the organizational structures, or the everyday things that are happening. So, You want to empower black people in the workplace? You want to fight back against racism? Democratize the workplace and give everybody an equal say. Let the black worker have more than just a boss that they have to listen to in a rigid hierarchy. Give the black worker direct control over their labor. You really want to fight back against this stuff? You could argue that that inherent hierarchy is unfair to the black workers and the white workers who have the boss lording over them. That's one way to fight back against it. If you want to do that? Or you don't want to do that. Interesting. I mean, listen, you do have, there's a disproportionate effect on black people and on minorities with our low minimum wage. those communities are more impacted by the low minimum wage than white communities, disproportionately speaking. You wanna address that? How about the lack of health care? That's a huge problem in communities of color. A single-payer healthcare system helps fight back against that. The criminal justice system is deeply bigoted. You know, we've discussed this before, but the evidence is overwhelming. So, you know, for example, a black person and a white person commit the same crime, black person is much more likely to get the death penalty for it. There's an extreme disproportionate application of mandatory minimums. They're used against black people way more than they're used against white people, again, for the same crime. I do think that there's merit to the idea that, you know, the, the carceral state The mass incarceration that we've done in this country is like the new Jim Crow. And in fact, Nixon's White House admitted it, literally. They came out and said, well, yeah, what we wanted to do was come up with a way to criminalize the hippie white lifestyle and the black lifestyle because we knew they weren't going to vote for us. So we wanted to get them out of the way as an electoral problem. And so they did the drug war and they locked up the undesirables to them. And then you get the statistics like we talk about all the time, again, that um black people and white people use marijuana at the same rate black people are four times more likely to get arrested for it even selling drugs uh white people sell drugs more than black people do black people are more likely to get arrested for selling drugs i mean the list goes on and on i could ring off a zillion stats that show a tremendous problem here and notice none of it gets addressed with this philosophy, and this mindset, and this outlook. This outlook just tells you, hey, feel bad personally, because you're inherently racist and a bad person, even if you don't realize it, and you always have to repent for your sins, and you always have um, have to be ever vigilant about always having white guilt, and always closely monitoring your thoughts and actions and the, the dedication to continuing these practices is the only thing that fixes the problem. So it's like a religious devotion and dedication to white guilt, effectively. As opposed to, again, if it's an individual interpersonal problem, then there, she's not talking about new laws that need to be passed. She's not talking about structural systemic problems that we just outlined. He's focusing on, hey, just feel like shit for being white and always, you know, have white guilt and always um, check yourself and monitor your privilege. That's really what the idea is. That's the idea. And it's so easy for corporations to say, yeah, she got it. She got it. That's what it is. It's all individual level. You all have to monitor your thoughts nonstop. We'll have some diversity training and that'll be it. It's not like, oh, us corporations will now pay our workers more. We'll, we'll have more unions now, or we'll democratize the workplace, therefore giving black voters and black uh, workers a bigger say in their careers and in the decisions of their respective companies. It's none of that, ever. It's not, oh, we're going to fix the broken and, and racist criminal justice system. No, it's none of that. None of that. Again, Wages. There's been uh, detailed studies on this as well about the inherent biases when it comes to uh, wages. And like the eBay study, for example, comes to mind. You have a black hand holding a product versus a white hand holding the product, same product. The white hand gets way more hits than the black hand. Traditional, uh, the resume study where you have like a, a, a classic white sounding name on a resume versus a classic black sounding name on a resume, everything else the same, the white name gets way more hits. Like all of this stuff that's kind of baked into the system, you don't none of that gets questioned, none of that gets reform, none of that gets policy change. What you get is somebody scolding you to feel like shit if you're white and to be ever vigilant and monitor yourself. The race problem in this country is not an individual interpersonal issue. You could say that the handful of open bigots and racists who are left, for them it is, but that's a very tiny percentage. In terms of everyday people, no. The race problem is not an individual interpersonal issue. It's a systemic problem, and it requires systemic change. And no amount of self-monitoring or white guilt is going to change that. So uh, the evidence backs up that what she's pushing is snake oil that these diversity training courses, which are her wheelhouse, are total nonsense, don't change anything, and if anything, have a backlash effect, and make the problem worse. Make attitudes change for the worse. Make people who maybe really did kind of not care and not see race at all feel some sort of resentment now, because you're forcing them to focus on the issue and feel like shit, (laughs) because... They're told, you know, you got all these problems and you're racist and you're inherently bad. Of course there's going to be a backlash to that. People are going to say, no, I'm not. Fuck off. So, unfortunately, you see, yet again, this is the hijacking of something, a movement that started with promise. If the initial reaction was, hey, George Floyd was murdered, police brutality is a big issue, let's address these injustices, let's do systemic police reform, they were calling for defunding the police, which moved the Overton window and got us, you know, even Republicans to come around on some very basic reforms that are necessary. But you take something that started very real and you hijack it with corporate bullshit. And that's exactly what this is. All right, next. I think that with this story, we can say it represents a problem that's unique and specific to the United States. Brings me no pleasure to say that, but I think it's true. Aggressive anti-mask customers are forcing some restaurants to shut dining rooms to protect employees from abuse. So um, they give an example, and they give a few examples, I believe, in the article. One of them is this place called Hugo's Tacos in L.A., and here's a quote from the owner. Staff have been harassed, called names, and had objects and liquids thrown at them. A mask isn't symbolic of anything other than our desire to keep our staff healthy. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I've come across this now, too, that masks have become deeply political, where... There was this brief moment where everybody agreed, like, Duh, of course that makes sense. Then, yes, you can argue that, like, the World Health Organization and the CDC and Fauci and everybody in positions of authority lied. They lied. And they said, oh, masks uh, maybe don't work. They went with that line. Meanwhile, what was really going on is they, wanted, they feared a shortage of masks, and they wanted to make sure we had enough masks for the frontline workers. But instead of just saying that, they lied and said, masks don't work, so don't get them. That was terrible. That was absolutely terrible. But then what happened after is, over time, they finally made it, okay, yeah, masks do work. But over time now, it really has become the case that, I don't know the numbers, so I'm just guessing here, but I want to say that, like, 70% of the country agrees. Like, yeah, masks, duh. But then there's a solid 30% or so block that's like, no, it's fake news. There are some people even arguing that, And masks make it worse, that masks are more deadly. Seriously, I've seen that argument many times now. And so you have this really, really unique and terrible situation where in this country, you have some people where if they're told at some sort of business, hey, you got to wear a mask, they flip out at you. There's been a lot of videos that went viral where people are just screaming like, no, wrong. This is fake news. I'm an independent thinker. As if, like, you know, it's, it's somehow brave, and it embraces my freedom and liberty. And um, I'm also, like, I just know stuff you don't, okay? And so I happen to know that masks don't work, bro. There's this weird arrogance to people who are making this argument, and it's virtually across the board with people who are making this argument. And, um, yes, you have workers who are getting harassed. Now, I just want to say... I think this is an embarrassment for the U.S. I mean, there's a lot of things that are embarrassing us at this point in time, but can you imagine being somebody in any other country, looking at what's happening in the U.S., and going, what on, they cannot get their act together. How do you have such a strong contingent of anti-mask people in the country? Guys, believe it or not, Chelsea Clinton made a good point about this. I know it's weird to say, but it's true. She said, I wish that Trump, early on in this crisis, created Trump masks because if he created Trump masks and pushed masks, then all his people would be wearing masks, but he didn't do it. So he's partly responsible because he was doing the anti-mask thing for a while. Now he pretends at least in rhetoric, like, Oh yeah, no, they definitely work. But for so long, he was like against them and not wearing them in public. And of course he didn't sell Trump masks. And you know, now there's a strong contingent of right-wing people who think it's some sort of weird conspiracy or something. It really is a shame, and I think it's a national embarrassment, that even something as simple as masks, you know, you can make the analogy or comparison to seatbelts, but I actually think that masks are a little more important because seatbelts, you know, the likelihood of somebody getting in an accident is very low overall. So, you know, maybe it's not as serious, but with the virus, there's an acute threat. There's an acute threat if you don't wear the mask. So it's just... It's just wild to see how this has unfolded and how so many people have just gone with this hardcore anti-science view and to the point where they even harass poor workers over it. Now, I guess I'll finish this segment by showing you the following here. Clinical Microbiology Lab Director Rich Davis says the following. What does a mask do? It blocks respiratory droplets coming from your mouth and throat. Two simple demos. First, I sneezed, sang, talked, and coughed towards a culture palette with or without a mask. Uh, Bacteria colonies show where droplets landed. A mask blocks virtually all of them. So guys, they absolutely work. I mean, think about it, it's just common sense. If it's spread by the droplets coming out of your mouth, obviously covering your mouth is gonna block the droplets or at least block them way more than they would be if you didn't cover your mouth and nose. So just at face value, it's one of those things, it's like a tautology to say that masks probably help stop the spread of viruses. And apart from this you know, clear clinical microbiology lab director proving it, I've actually evolved some of my beliefs on what's happened with this pandemic and with the shutdown of the economy and everything, because I look at what Japan did. They never shut down their economy, and the only thing that they did differently from us is that almost everybody wears a mask in Japan. And they had less than 1,000 people die of COVID-19. We have over 120,000 people die. Again, the only difference is that Japan, they, we closed down parts of the economy, but not everybody was wearing a mask. And we were just whole, just confused mess of reactions. All Japan did. They didn't shut down the economy. Everybody wore a mask. Less than 1,000 COVID deaths. Like, literally, the solution is everybody wearing a mask. That's the, so we wouldn't have even had to shut down the economy if everybody wore a mask. And if we had smart enough leaders who realized, like, oh, if everybody just wears a mask, we'll be okay. And social distance as much as possible. But that's it. The masks, not only are they helpful, they are literally the solution that's the realization I had that, hey, I was actually wrong thinking like, oh, yeah, sure. We got to shut down the economy and do this and that. Certain very narrow, limited things should, should have been shut down, I think. Like things where you can't wear a mask, like dining out can't do it because you have to take off the mask to eat. And if you take off the mask and you're indoors with a lot of people, the virus is going to spread. So, yeah, like restaurants kind of had to close for indoor dining, of course. But outside of very limited, narrow things, if everybody's wore a mask, that was it. That was the solution. It would have saved so many lives. So don't be idiots, please, guys. That's it. That's all I'm asking. Is everybody just, don't be a moron. (laughs) Don't be a moron, and we would have gotten through this a hell of a lot better. All right, next. Brings me no pleasure to talk about this, but here we go. The Arctic is on fire. Siberian heat wave alarms scientists. So it hit 100 degrees in Siberia not too long ago. And apparently, the Arctic is warming three times faster than the rest of the planet. So there are wildfires burning. And here's our worst fear. They say in this piece, quote, persistently warm weather, especially if coupled with wildfires, that's happening, causes permafrost to thaw faster, which in turn exacerbates global warming by releasing large amounts of methane, a potent greenhouse gas that's 28 times stronger than carbon dioxide. So this for a long time has been... A fear of scientists that it's game, set, match if the permafrost thaws, and that's what's happening, which is why, likely, that the Arctic is warming three times faster than the rest of the planet, because it's a greenhouse gas that's 28 times stronger than carbon dioxide, and now it's being released in the Arctic, in Siberia. it's so past due to address this with like global climate strategy. But of course we had the Paris Climate Agreement which didn't go nearly far enough and then the US pulled out of that. This is terrifying man, this is terrifying. Now another interesting fact about this is that, so methane is getting in the atmosphere and apparently that has the effect of stalling the jet stream. And that affects weather worldwide. So I don't know how many of you notice this. I definitely notice this because I'm weird. Like, I think, I definitely think I have a bit of seasonal depression because I'm just so much more unhappy in the winter than I am in the summer. Um, But have you noticed that I have that as I've gotten older, I feel like weather systems last longer. Like, if it rains, oftentimes it'll just rain all day or for two full days. Whereas I feel like more when I was a kid, it would rain, and then it'd be over with in like a couple hours. Or a heat wave. Like, yeah, you'd have a heat wave, but it would be in and out quicker. Whereas now, it's like you get prolonged stretches of weather. Well, there's a scientific reason for that. The methane that's being released in the Arctic is stalling the jet stream, and when the jet stream stalls, then weather systems move a hell of a lot slower so one of the results of that is going to be more when you get a certain kind of weather, it's more persistent and lasts longer. So that's why I like flash flooding now is a bigger issue than it was decades ago. Because if you have a weather system that's over a place, it parks over a place and stays there for much longer than it used to because the jet stream stalled out. I mean, that's crazy. That's crazy. Now, to scare you a little bit more here, Arctic sea ice, extent near Siberia remains well below any previous year in the satellite era record. So, guys, the point here is every single time we go back and look at the data, the trend is worse than what the worst-case scenario was predicted years ago. And so now the Arctic sea ice near Siberia is well below any previous year in the satellite era record much less ice. Um, Terrifying. Terrifying. Now, the consequences of this are endless. Endless. You know, we've discussed it before, but on top of sea level rise, with climate change, you're going to get wars over water at a certain point, where, like, places run out of water to drink, and then there's wars over water, and then there's climate refugees, and you have certain places... Like, in the Middle East, for example, they become too hot for human beings to live. You have mass migration crises. You have, you know, trillions of dollars likely having to be spent in relocation and in cleaning up, fixing from natural disasters, because obviously natural disasters are on the uptick as well. Wildfires, droughts, more powerful hurricanes. I mean, the list goes on and on of all the disastrous effects as a result of this. And it massively will impact the global economy in ways that maybe we haven't even calculated or, or thought about yet. So the change is happening so fast. The solution, you know, was obvious. We just had to move towards a greener, renewable technology future and had to do it a while ago. But if we did, it would have been fine. It, there's a, a real serious problem that we have now where it's this political stagnation. And I really do believe it's brought about by immense corruption. In a previous era, I think we would have gotten through it. Like when you look at the response from FDR to the Great Depression, and we did the New Deal, and we really tackled these problems. Because at that time, you didn't have corporate money basically running our political system. Now our political system is a bunch of corporations and a bunch of billionaires that really make the decisions because they fund the campaigns. And so the politicians are just puppets of those industries and of, of the wealthy. So yeah, when ExxonMobil has a seat at the table and they block any real reform, of course this is going to happen. So the issue at, at its heart was the takeover of the system by the corporations and the wealthy. I think in a previous era, we would have actually done something to fight back against this. Now, It's tweaks around the edges, and then now even the tweaks around the edges are thrown out, like when we pulled out of the Paris Climate Agreement, and we're right back to square one. It's really crazy that we have this political stagnation, and I don't know if we'll ever get our act together. I think I've been morphing into a long-term pessimist. Because the scale of the problem is so large, and our response has to be so huge. And we're just not up to the challenge at the moment, and it's terrifying. All right, next. So this next story is really something mainstream media totally ignored. Um, But Raw Story had an article on it and, uh, and some video on it as well. They say, watch huge group of armed black protesters march on Confederate monument in Georgia. So, you know, you can see that's what they look like there. It was a lot of people. I'll show you a video here in a sec. Um, This is in Georgia on July 4th. And they're marching to Stone Mountain Confederate Memorial, which is a nine-story sculpture in northeast Atlanta. And it's the biggest Confederate monument in the country. It's basically like this giant shrine to the Confederacy. And, um, you know, the whole point of these monuments originally was to spit in the eye of the Civil Rights Movement and, and black folks and, and to say, like, we have a hierarchy here and know your place. And um, a lot of people don't know that, that the Confederate flag that we think of today is the Confederate flag, um, that was birthed in the Civil Rights Movement. It was a giant middle finger to um, civil rights and equality. And... These monuments are also, many of them are very cheaply made and just thrown up because, again, the point was to say, screw you, to people trying to make change for the better. So this group calls themselves the NFAC, the Not Fucking Around Coalition. (laughs) And apparently a little further down the road were Trump supporters on motorcycles with MAGA flags. So there was no, um, at least that I know of, there was no... Fighting, there were no shots fired, and you know the peace was kept. So that's that's definitely a positive thing. Now, gun owners of America, the group Gun Owners of America, and the NRA, they came out in favor of American citizens peacefully um, protesting with their weapons because, of course, these. Um, these groups believe in the right to bear arms. They believe in the Second Amendment. They believe in responsible gun ownership in America, and not a shot was fired at this event. So the NRA is hugely supportive of this. Oh, wait, I made that part up. Gun owners of America and the NRA said Dickie McGee's Act. They had nothing to say. And, uh, in fact, <laughs> if we ever were to get gun control, it'll be because of stuff like this. <laughs> Let's keep it real. At this point, that will ever get sufficient gun control to really ameliorate the problem of mass gun casualties every year in this country. But if we were to get it, it would be because you have giant groups of black people dressed in military gear marching through the streets holding guns. Because if there's anything that'll scare the pants off of white America, it's this. Um, But interestingly enough, you know, like I said, it was peaceful. Not a shot was fired, as far as I know. And um, it was just a show of, all right, you know what? We've had it. With the killing of George Floyd and the police brutality issues and our Confederate monuments coming down around the country, Mississippi just got rid of the Confederate flag in their state flag. There's a moment here where, where people are saying, all right, you know what? Enough. We get it. Oh, you have armed militias, too, and you have protesters, too, with your MAGA flags and whatnot um, and your Confederate flags, well, we have guns too, we have numbers too, and we're flexing a little bit on you right now, so, you know, if you, don't, if you don't like what you see, maybe we change society for the better, you know, maybe we get rid of the Confederate monuments, maybe we get rid of the Confederate flag, maybe we fix the, uh, police brutality problem and various injustices in this country, and, um, you know, guns, Guns are are an interesting issue because I feel like I've gone back and forth on that issue a number of times. Originally being very pro Second Amendment, to then being in favor of massive gun control. Now I think I've I've have like a middle path. I think we need some basic gun reforms, but I do overall believe in the Second Amendment and the right to bear arms. And I think that you know reasonable, responsible gun owners should not be punished because there are many um, people who are terrible with the guns who do violence, but I do think there's some sort of a middle path where you could have effective regulation, you could have background checks, um, you could have bans on high-capacity magazines and whatnot, but, you know, there's a certain point where even I become uncomfortable. So I'm, I, I think I have a relatively moderate position on guns. But um, between this and if you get some armed Muslim Americans carrying guns, you might actually see a 180 in the government, whoa, 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 should we say, did we say no gun reform? What we meant was, see what happened was, what I think is maybe we'll, we got to do some, because we don't like it when there are Mex- just, <laughs> Mexicans carrying guns, I was going to say, uh, Muslims and black people carrying guns, and actually throw Mexicans in there to boot. If there's some armed <laughs> Mexican groups too, um, the politicians in this country be like, whoa, whoa, we didn't mean that. When we said right to bear arms, we didn't mean for them. What's going on here? So anyway. Interesting story that was not touched at all by mainstream media. I wonder why it wasn't touched by mainstream media. But um, somebody said it's bigger than any even Black Panther uh, movement that they've seen. So there was some sort of a reawakening in this country, that's for sure, and we're seeing the fruits of it now. All right, I think we're going to do Uno Mas. Yeah, I think we're going to do Uno Mas. Wait, if I could find the story that I wanted to cover. Hmm, I actually can't find it. I was going to cover a story about Andrew Yang being in favor of a four-day work week, but it looks like it was deleted. Hmm, interesting. All right. Well, I have another one that I want to cover then anyway. So I know there are going to be quite a few I told you so's out there. In fact, I could almost feel Corin watching this segment saying I told you so to me because him and I have had this discussion previously, but... Uh, The Washington Post is out with a new article based on a study. And um, what they say is money actually can buy happiness, study finds. So um, it's a, a new report, and it took place over a couple decades, actually, I believe. I think it was with the General Social Survey. And apparently more money is associated with being increasingly happier. So let me read you some from the Washington Post article here. They say, the expanding class divide in happiness in the United States, and it took place between 1972 and 2016, published last week in the journal Emotion, found that among people aged 30 and older, the correlation between income and happiness has steadily risen over the years. The study used data from the General Social Survey, one of the longest running nationally representative surveys of U.S. adults, With 44,198 participants between 1972 and 2016, it found a growing class divide in happiness with the happiness of whites with no college education steadily declining since 1972, while the happiness of whites with a college education stayed steady. For African Americans, the results were different but still reflected a rising money-happiness correlation. Happiness levels of blacks with no college education has stayed steady since 1972, while the happiness of blacks with college education has increased. For both races, the happiness gap by education has grown. The findings challenge the money-can't-buy-happiness adage, which had been supported by other studies, including a widely cited 2010 Princeton University report showing that at levels higher than $75,000, a rise in income is not associated with greater happiness. The General Social Survey did not ask exactly the same question as that used by the Princeton study, which asked participants how they had felt the previous day and whether they were living the best possible life for themselves. The General Social Survey asked, taken all together, how would you say things are these days? Would you say you are very happy, pretty happy, or not too happy? The new study divided respondents into quintiles and, also, and deciles on the basis of income and looked at how they answered that question over several years decades. So um, so in this study, they say, no, it is true. the more money that somebody made, generally speaking, the happier they were. There was a statistically significant change in happiness level the more money they made. Um, now, the thing that I always referenced when having this conversation was the exact study that they cited from 2010, the Princeton study, which found that, and it's interesting, the way they, they phrased it, was oh money doesn't buy happiness but that's not what the princeton study actually says the princeton study says that as you go from very low income and you steadily rise up to $75,000 a year there is a measurable statistically significant increase in happiness the more you go up the income scale but and here's the point once you hit 75,000 it kind of tops out And stays the same. So somebody who makes $75,000 a year versus somebody who makes $250,000 a year versus somebody who makes $2.5 million a year, everything $75,000 and above, your happiness level doesn't go up. It stays the same. But you are more likely to be happy if you make $75,000 or more than if you make $20,000 or $30,000 or $40,000 a year. So, The Princeton study did not really say money doesn't buy happiness. In fact, I would say a more accurate description of that study is money buys happiness up to a certain point, and then you're on your own. Um, Now, this one is a little different, and it says, no, the more you go up the income scale, yes, the more likely you are to be happy, and it's statistically significant. I'm not surprised by either one of these studies. But the bottom line is you need to hit some level of financial security in order to be happy. That's what they're saying. And the $75,000 a year, you know, researchers said that that's kind of the level where you're gonna be okay no matter where you live in the country. Even if you live in a very high income district or county or town or whatever, that's a cutoff where you're gonna be all right. You could pay the bills and you also have enough for some leisure stuff. So that 75 line is like the, you're gonna be just fine line. Whereas there's an argument for anything underneath that, depending on where you live and everything, that you're really, it's it's a struggle to make ends meet. And having that peace of mind, well, I can take care of the bills. That's enough to make people happy. And in this new one, they say, yes, the more you make, generally speaking, the more your happiness ticks up. Guys, I can't adequately describe to you and explain to you how much this verifies the left-wing narrative. Because yes, the the left is very focused on material well-being. That's traditional leftist approach. It's like you have to look at economics to to really study human beings and and be objective about human beings and, and create a just society. Yes, you have to... Economic well-being is like front and center in this conception of the world. And... What this shows me is, honestly, exactly the conclusion I had with the Princeton study, which is look at the social democracies and just understand that in study after study, they rank as the happiest in the world. Every now and then there's you know, maybe a, a little bit of a, a switch around in terms of which Scandinavian country it is, and every now and then another country you know, pops up in the top five or top three, but by and large, they dominate the top five or ten of the happiest in the world. It's the Scandinavian social democracies. Why is that? Because they've crafted systems to make sure that everybody's going to be financially stable. They've, they've made sure, hey, we'll take certain things off the table. In some, some of those countries, education is totally off the table. Don't worry about it. It's taken care of. Healthcare is totally off the table. Don't worry about it. It's taken care of. You get way more vacation time. That's also off the table. You're going to have plenty of leisure time throughout the year. Nobody's going to take that away from you. Nobody's going to change that. They have generous uh, social safety net with benefits. So I think that these studies prove that if we're trying to create a society that has a lot of people who are happy, that's the direction we have to go in. We have to move towards a social democratic system that views the floor for a person, as a reasonable floor, where you're not living in some sort of desperate, poverty-stricken situation through no fault of your own. So, you know, I, I like to file this stuff under the duh category, but there are, you know, giant disagreements on this. Oftentimes, you hear, you hear, like, rich Hollywood-type people who who would say, like, no, there is no correlation at all between You know, money and happiness. That's kind of a bullshit position that's pretty convenient because usually the people who say that are pretty damn rich. So that's a BS position. But I also think it's a BS position to think it's solely the money that equals happiness because there are plenty of like totally vapid, just terrible, greedy pieces of crap who are phenomenally wealthy but they are miserable and they have depression or they end up committing suicide who work on Wall Street, for example. That's just one example. But like meaning is just as important as the the financial stability. But that's the mix that you need. You need to have the financial stability to know you're going to be okay. And that allows you to be happy where you could do the self-actualization as a you know, psychologist has put it previously. I'm forgetting who, but so you need the financial stability and then the, the meaning, something to, to define your life and give you meaning and give you passion and purpose. I think you need both of those things. It's not that only the money matters, and it's not that money doesn't matter at all. It definitely matters, as these studies show. But it's that line of you need to have some sort of financial security and stability, and then, then you search out the meaning, which, you know, I think will give you, bring you into an echelon of happiness that perhaps previously you couldn't breach if you don't have the meaning on top of the financial security and stability. So anyway, interesting study, not surprised. And I think if anything, it proves what we've been saying all along, which is, hey, look at the happiest countries on earth and see what they're doing right, study them. And it just so happens that all those countries have relative financial stability and security for everybody in the country. They treat their citizens like people human beings. They get more vacation time. They get free health care, free education, you know, generous social safety net uh, programs. That's what it takes. That's what it takes. Financial stability plus meaning. That's what I think the, the recipe is. And I think that this study, as well as the one from 2010, are both fascinating, but kind of unsurprising as well. All right. We are done, baby. I love you guys. I'll talk to everybody soon. Next week, we're going to switch up a little bit the schedule. There's going to be a normal show on Monday at the normal time. And then instead of a show on Thursday, it will be Wednesday. And the time for that show will be announced um, on our next show on Thursday. This Thursday, I will announce what time the Wednesday show is next week. But anyway, love you guys. Everybody stay healthy out there. I'll talk to you soon. Peace.